Welcome to the first episode of Dialogues, hosted by me, Richard Reeves. One of the best descriptions I've come across of a dialogue is thinking together in relationship. I really like that, and I'm going to use that as the motto for this podcast. I've got some terrific guests lined up, and I'm really excited about this new venture, so thank you for giving it a listen. My first guest is the NYU professor and social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who's probably best known for his book The Righteous Mind in 2012, and then The Coddling of the American Mind with Greg Lukianoff in 2018. John and I talk about what has been described as a crisis of epistemology in the very ways in which we discover and generate knowledge and truth. Why has this epistemic crisis hit so many liberal democracies? What lies behind it? And most importantly, what can we do about it? Uh, we discuss why John hates Twitter, how you can get social superpowers by combining the insights of the 18th century philosopher David Hume with the 19th century philosopher John Stuart Mill, the way that Gen Z has driven a change in the culture of college campuses and subsequently in some corporate cultures, uh, why kids born in 1996 have had such fundamentally different childhoods, John says, compared to those born in 1990, and also what he sees as a gravitational shift in the information ecosystem dating from about 2009. One quick plug, uh, John and I have actually edited a, a version of chapter two of John Stuart Mill's famous essay on liberty, where Mill argues for the importance of freedom of speech as a way to help us individually and collectively to, to learn. The new edition is called All Minus One. It's free uh, and it's linked in the show notes. Actually, we mentioned quite a few essays and books uh, and lectures and so on along the way. They're all linked in the show notes. I hope you enjoyed this first episode of Dialogues. I certainly did. John, welcome to Dialogues. Thank you, Richard. What a pleasure to be here with you. It's my first of the inaugural Dialogues. In fact, you're my very first guest and I'm honored and flattered that you've agreed uh, to join me. So, Thank you. We have, we're going to cover a lot of interesting ground. We're going to be talking about the arguments for free speech, what's happened to the information ecosystem, how do we, how do we argue about these things and the, the sort of epistemic crisis that you've, you've been writing on. But you're a psychologist by training. So I'm going to start with some family therapy, if, if that's okay. I had a, a, a... All right, I'm not, I'm not that kind of psychologist, but let's, see what, let's well, see what I can do. Okay. Well, I think you'll find this interesting. I had an argument with a family member a, a, on my wife's side, an in-law, about the results of the election. Uh, he was convinced that it was fraudulent. I'm sure many people are having arguments of this nature. And I, was try I had you in mind. I was trying to think about the righteous mind. I was trying to stay calm, and I failed. And we ended up having a difficult exchange. And so I emailed him to apologize for any offense I had caused him. And he emailed me back, just came in yesterday. So I wanted to share this with you. He said, uh, said, first of all, he said, I'm not offended, but here's what he had to say. As much as anything, my intuitive nature gives me doubts about the election. I have had good business and personal success relying on my instincts and gut feeling. I see no reason to doubt them now concerning this election. I cannot at this time refute your arguments for Trump's lack of success in the courts, because I'd mentioned, well, why didn't he win in the courts then, except to say that there is a lack of trust in that process. I think most Americans like me just want the truth. We can live with the truth, but it seems nowhere to be found. I think my relative oh, wow. just summarized the epistemic crisis, right? <laughs> so <laughs> well, uh, it's all yeah, there, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it, it is. That is a beautiful quote. I mean, 
beautiful, at least for me as a social psychologist. Just yeah, it would be a beautiful one to have in the righteous <laughs> mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so the uh, so in the righteous mind, the first principle of moral psychology is intuitions come first, um, post hoc reasoning comes second, and so we know what we feel, and that points us towards what we want to justify. And and so I'm part of a, a, a group of psychologists in the last fifteen or twenty years who who argue that so much of of our thinking is done for social purposes, not to find the truth. Our, our reason isn't there to help us find the truth. It's actually evolved to help us persuade others and manage our reputations. And, um, and so I think what your, what your relative was saying was he's just got this strong sentiment that, that something's wrong. And, and you'd have to look beyond the things he's focusing on to understand why the other side feels or thinks the way they do. You've got to start seeing the whole system that they see and why they don't trust the things that you trust. But anyway, he's got this strong feeling, um, and you can give him reason after reason, but because, oh, there's a great quote from David Hume on this, you know, but because reason is not the source by which either man derives his, his view, then, you know, uh, you know, giving reasons basically is not going to change their mind. Uh, and he is just much more explicit about it than, than maybe the rest of us are. Um, so, yeah, I think that quote really shows both the psychology and the current sociology, especially that line, that last line. What was it? Like? The truth is nowhere truth, to be we, found. We can live with the truth, but it seems nowhere to be found. And so it's almost as the absence of any author- space of authority. Where's, where does the authority come from? It's just a kaleidoscope now. And so it's, it seems nowhere to be found. That's, the, that's right. That is the most profound line in there. And that, I think, is that's really going to get us into the epistemic crisis. Um, but yes, um, there was an article in the Atlantic recently, I forget by whom, but it was basically arguing that to understand why those people believe the crazy things they do, why do people believe conspiracies, you've got to really flip it around and not ask why they believe X, but why have they stopped believing the authorities? Why have they stopped? You have to focus on what they've stopped believing. And I think that's going to get us much further in understanding your, your relative and in understanding um, the epistemic crisis that we're in. Yeah, well, actually, we're going to get into Mill at some point and uh, universities, but you've, you've mentioned Hume already. So actually, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, how you how you think about the role of free speech and reason, given what you've just said about Hume. So mm-hmm. you do say, you have this lovely line in um, The Righteous Mind, which is something about we are absolutely dreadful at changing our own mind. Um, that's why we have friends, we have other people, and that they can actually then get us to question our intuition mm-hmm. and perhaps come to kind of different view. Now, in the righteous mind, you famously had this, you know, the famous metaphor is the elephant and uh, the rider, and the rider's job is just to kind of provide post hoc reasoning uh, for the elephant, right? And so if that's the case, John, why bother with speech or reason at all? If you can't reason with the elephant, why does free speech matter. And in some ways, conservatives would say, all you're doing is upsetting things by undermining traditions and so on. So it's like, uh, where do you land in terms of how you think about Hume and the elephant uh, and, the, yeah. and now your passionate <clears throat> advocacy for free speech? Because one response would be, John, didn't you just tell me that none of that matters? Mm-hmm. It's all the elephant. Thank you. No, that's a perfect setup. That's got all the, all the pieces I really want to talk about here. So, uh, so I'm a Humean. You know, I follow David Hume in terms of how I think our minds work with reason and emotion. But my main contribution in psychology um, is called the social intuitionist model. And it's a model of how, how we make judgments. 
And there's been a lot of writing about it, but everybody focuses on the intuitionist part. And they say, oh, as you did, the, oh, you know, you've argued that the mind is like, the mind is divided like a rider on an elephant. And the rider is the conscious reasoning. The elephant is all the other stuff, the emotion, the intuition. And the elephant is so much more powerful, so isn't it hopeless? Nobody ever takes me seriously about the social part. The social intuitionist model is a model that lays out how we have these gut feelings. We make up reasons afterwards to justify to others. We give those reasons to others. We usually don't change their mind, but then they give us reasons. And as you go around and around, if you hate the other person, you're actually gonna, gonna find even more reasons why they're wrong. But if you're engaging with another person in the right circumstances, with the right social norms, and perhaps with some something that binds you together or some reason why you actually want to try to understand each other, then you really do get closer to the truth. And this is why I shifted uh, from uh, when I was writing The Righteous Mind, it was um, Hume was my favorite philosopher. But when I was writing The Coddling of the American Mind with Greg Lukianoff, which is about the, the bizarre changes that have happened on university campuses since 2014, Mill became my favorite philosopher because he's the one who really, really understood the limitations of the individual and the brilliance of a group or even just a pair that are speaking in the right circumstances. So it's this idea of you know, social epistemology, like l doing stuff together. Actually, the motto of this podcast is a definition of dialogue as thinking together in relationship. And you're right, that's very million. It's about collation. In fact, uh, one of the reasons that we know each other, John, is we've worked together on this amazing edition of chapter two of Mills on Liberty called All Minus One, which came from Heterodox Academy. I, I actually emailed you having seen a lecture, which we'll talk about in a moment, about Truth University and Social Justice University and Mill. And I said, how can I help? Which is a fate, I've discovered a fateful phrase to be used yeah. with you. Because <laughs> you, yeah. you never say, actually, I've got it covered, thanks. Yeah. And so we ended up working together. And it's, I mean, and it's actually out in a new edition. Um, so I encourage everybody to check that out. It has wonderful illustrations from Dave Ciccarelli, who, who you found. So you ended up kind of in that milieu. So I was just going to ask you, sort of, I thought, when I read The Righteous Mind, I thought you were like 90% Hume, 10% Mill. To use one of your other metaphors. It seems like you're maybe a little bit more 50 50, 50 yeah. now, but it does require us to be. No, I'd say you, we, let's, let's, it's not 50 50, it's 90 90. Let's collate the two. Love Bill's it. got the intuition and Hume's got the, the social uh, and more cognitive features. You're right. People did miss that social bit of it, but it does require us to be open to each other. Right? You've just described a world in which where there's a. Uh, you presume goodwill on the part of the other person, where actually you're listening. I think one of the things that's lost in all this debate about free speech, which, which is not lost to you but to others, is that the point is to be heard. The point is the listening bit. The point is the openness to, to that. And that requires us not to hate each other, right? That requires us well, not to be writing like, each other off even before we open our mouths. Well, that's right. But that's like the, so that's like the beginner lesson is, you know, let's, you know, we can only do this if we don't hate each other, so try not to hate each other. But the advanced course shows you that, you know what, you don't have to presume goodwill. Um, if you hate the other person, you're not gonna, your mind won't be open. But if the other person hates you, you can actually still learn from them. And this is, you know, we'll, we'll probably talk about Twitter later, and I hate Twitter, and I think that it, it has made the world a worse place. But what I found is if I put an idea out on Twitter, very quickly, like within an hour or two, I can get all kinds of great you know, I, I find out where my weaknesses are, along with finding out about all the terrible things about me and my, you know, whatever groups I belong to. And uh, uh, if you can look past the nastiness, you really can profit. And so 
this is, again, this is like, you know, understanding Mill and Hume together gives you these social superpowers. And one of them is that you can go into a situation like Twitter or an argument, and you come out stronger and smarter no matter what. And that, I think, is a very Millian lesson. That's like, you know, that's like the Mill master level. Yeah, and you actually, you've, I think, traced this very well through the kind of different iterations. There's almost been a kind of trickle down of this epistemic crisis is starting on, arguably starting on college campuses. And I think you were, you were one of the first to write about that. And in fact, my son ran into me one day and said, Dad, you have to watch this lecture from this guy talking about Mill as the patron saint of Truth University mm-hmm. and Marx as the patron saint of Social Justice University. We watched it together. And that's when I sent you the email uh, saying, right. okay, I want right. you to help. And so you were really tracking this on, on campuses. And it seems, if anything, to be kind of getting... Well, but it's trickled down from there. But yeah. talk a bit about where, what did you notice in, on campuses? How did you get okay. into this? So, okay, so there's, there's, there's two things. So we'll start. So I just want to first put a little bookmark on the year 2015 as the year that um, everything went crazy and the world after 2015 is very different from the world before 2009. That, that's the period in which, in which very large systems started going haywire. So we'll get back. I just want to put a note there. We'll come back to that. But now let's go back uh, two years before to 2013-2014 when my friend Greg Lukianoff, who runs the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education, started noticing weird stuff starting to happen on campuses. And he's uh, FIRE, his his organization defends free speech rights. And he'd always been having to push back against university administrators who are trying to protect the university from controversy or liability. And suddenly in the 2013 to 2014 academic year, he noticed that it was actually students who were saying, we need to ban this speaker. We need to stop people from saying these things. We need protection from words. So suddenly this whole new stuff about trigger warnings, safe spaces, microaggressions, uh, cultural appropriation, bias response teams, all these things in which students were demanding protection. They were demanding that the adults, the deans, the professors, whatever, protect them. And Greg recognized that the arguments they were giving were actually the very arguments he had learned to stop giving when he learned cognitive behavioral therapy for depression. He'd, he'd had a suicidal depression a few years earlier. And so um, so he came to talk to me because I, he'd read my book, The Happiness Hypothesis, where I write about CBT. And he presented his ideas that somehow college is making students think in these distorted ways, like catastrophizing, black and white thinking, you know, just thinking that if a speaker comes to campus and you don't have to go to the talk, this is somehow going to harm you, is magical thinking. This is not something that college students should be doing. Uh, and I thought he was absolutely brilliant. I thought, this is amazing. This is, yes, I've, I've just begun seeing this and reading about this stuff, and his explanation made total sense. So at first we thought it was something unique to college campuses, and we wrote up an article about this, uh, and uh, the, the editors of The Atlantic gave it the title, The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, and it came out in the, in the summer of 2015, or August of 2015, and a lot of people said we were exaggerating, we're just picking up on some anecdotes, or it's uh, just the, then, it's just a handful of elite colleges at the top. Yeah, and, you know. right. Yeah, and you know when they when they get out when they graduate and join the real world, they're going to have to stop doing this. They can't possibly do this in the real world. So you know, what are you getting so worked up about? So that's what people said. And then at Halloween 2015, beginning at Yale, things really blew up, and these controversies over Halloween costume guidance, and and then suddenly it was just protests over so many issues about speech on campus. Um, so the university seemed to blow up in 2015 and to 2016, and Greg and I still were thinking, okay, what's going on at universities? What we didn't realize, and we only realized a couple years later, is that 
there were many, many forces coming together so that the whole social and intellectual and informational landscape had changed between 2009 and 2013, 2014. We saw it first on university campuses, but then we quickly saw it in democracies around the world. Uh, so that that's why it really is an episteme. It's a global episteme. Sort of crisis. spilling over, yeah. I think, you've, I think you've said before that you didn't have a chapter in the coddling uh, about workplaces, but you would now because yeah. because of this kind of spillover. That's, that it's that's no, right. This is no, this is no longer a kind of campus issue. So it's, it's into the the timing of this is interesting. There's a recession in the economy, but there's also kind of an epistemic recession as well, starting at elite universities, and then trickling down through into right. you know, society that's more right. broadly. Yeah. So, so to, just to trace out the spread. So when Greg and I wrote our article in early 2015, came out in August. Universities blew up a few months later, and that continued through the next academic year. Um, we immediately realized that actually it's the exact same thing in Canada and then um, and also in the UK. So uh, it wasn't just the United States. So whatever caused this, you know, people said, you know, was it the you know the opiate crisis or was it a mass shooting or was it you know what was it that was freaking college students out? Um, so it was it was clearly happening all over the English speaking world. Uh, it hit Australia, New Zealand several years later. They were they're far away. They're a little a little more disconnected, a little tougher than we are, frankly. Um, uh, that'll be controversial. <laughs> well, no, because no, you know we Americans all know that, and the Australians love love it when we say that. Um, so it was clear that it wasn't just the United States; it was at least all the English speaking countries, the major English speaking countries, uh, immediately. Um, and then it became clear that it wasn't just colleges; it actually was happening in high schools. And I realized right away, actually, that elite prep schools, in particular were basically uh, creating this mindset in, in students before they ever got to college. Um, but it still wasn't in professional schools, it wasn't in medical schools, it wasn't out in the business world in 2015-2016. Um, as we did more research and we started writing it up into a book, which was also called The Coddling the American Mind, um, we realized that the, the issue, that there are two issues. One is Gen Z and the other is, is the technology of social media. And it's those two things. You have to keep your eye on both. So the Gen Z thing um, is that kids born in 1996 and later had fundamentally different childhoods from kids born, say, in 1990. Um, and so the millennial generation, they didn't get social media until they were in college. Facebook wasn't even open to, to you if you weren't a college student in 2004, 2005. Um, and it's not until uh, 2009 to 2011, that's the two-year period in which... Uh, American teenagers flood onto so daily use of social media. So before that, they would often actually go over each other's houses or they would do something together. After 2011, since they're mostly on social media, they might be sitting next to each other, but they'll be communicating on so, uh, on, on their devices. Mm. Um, so American childhood and Canadian and British and elsewhere really changes in those few years. Um, they were also vastly overprotected. We go into this in the book, The Decline of Free Play, um, all over, I've, I've done this test all over the world. I ask people, not all over the world, all over Europe and, and North America and Latin America. Um, and I ask, at what age were you let out? At what age could you go outside, close the door, buy mom, you know, I'll, I'll see you at dinner, no adult supervision. And it's always six to eight. If you were born before 1980, 82, if you are Gen, uh, Gen X or older, six, seven, eight, you are out. Now, that was during the crime wave. There was a gigantic crime wave in the United States uh, in, the, in the 70s and 80s. But kids went out to play unsupervised. And all of a sudden, in the 90s, we freak out over child deduction. And as the mm. crime rate is plummeting, 
the crime wave ends between 1992 and 1994. It just vanishes. And as the crime rate drops, we coincidentally freak out about child abduction, and we never let our kids out after that. In fact, you could be arrested. If your nine-year-old is found playing in a park with a friend, you can be, if not arrested, at least you're, you're dragged into Child Protective Services and forced to undergo all kinds of training and restrictions. So we change the way we rear kids. We deprive them of the kinds of experiences of independence, of facing risk on their own. That's the most important thing. So for a variety of reasons, kids born in 1996 and later are different. They're more fragile. They have much higher rates of depression and anxiety. Um, And so it's when they arrived at college in September of 2013, that's when they first hit college. That's when Greg began to notice these weird things happening. And then so they they'd graduate. Be, they'd, been sh- they'd been shaped effectively in their child. Their, their childhood had prepared them for it. This, this is predates arriving. So they didn't arrive at college and then this, this started happening. Your argument, as I understand exactly. it, is that they'd kind of been prepared for this by this kind of, you use the anti-fragile idea. And that's a combination of living in social media as opposed to using it and then being somewhat more kind of socially incarcerated as a result of the irrational fear of abduction. Exactly. That's right. That, that's right. So our original idea. So they were our, primed, it, effectively. For, uh, you could or, or they drive it. They were, they were actually they weren't primed for it. They were driving it, right? I think your argument is that they drove these changes on college campus. It wasn't the faculty all of a sudden yeah. in 2015 decided they didn't. You know, they didn't go through the great awakening across co- college campuses. It wasn't professors. So your argument, I think, is they were responding to these new kinds of students and this new kind of environment of information, right? Um, more or less. That is, when we wrote the article originally, um, we we thought that it was universities driving it, and we were wrong. Um, we quickly realized that the universities were being changed by the students. Now, we didn't blame the students. We tried to then explain why Gen Z is so different from the millennials. And it's not so much that they were primed for it. It's that they were developmentally impaired. Um, the normal growth of a human being or of any mammal is to play. Animals play constantly, and they take risks in their play. And all of that is to tune up their frontal cortex, develop instincts, learn how to calibrate and manage and estimate risk, appeal for help from your friends. Do, you know, All the things kids learn in play are absolutely vital. Uh, and if you deny them that, if you make them spend their entire childhood preparing for tests and taking violin lessons and, and um, you know, doing organized sports where there's a coach watching you, you, you're basically stunting their growth. And we could get into all kinds of issues of class that you've written about, because of course, I was just about to, I was just about to ask, just about to ask that because an obvious rejoinder is you're describing upper middle class kids in their kind of suburban cocoons before going off to their selective colleges. And actually the, the message that there's not enough hardship and difficulty and risk in kids' lives is not one that lands very well with people in very disadvantaged backgrounds facing all kinds of structural problems. In fact, if anything, I kind of, they're facing, some people would describe rightly or wrongly as toxic stress at that end of the spectrum, right? So, and you're talking about almost like a toxic lack of stress at the other end mm-hmm. almost. Toxic coddling and toxic stress. No, that's exactly right. So here's some of the things we learned in writing the book. Um, one is that when we started writing, we expected that this was going to be especially a problem of the top 10%. We found it's more a problem in the top 50%. Um, and the two sources we relied on here that really informed us were Annette LaRoe wrote this book, Unequal Childhoods, 
and Robert Putnam wrote the book Our Kids, and they both come to the same conclusion, which is it's not race. I mean, there are race differences in child rearing, but that the big difference is not race, it's actually class. And so upper middle class black families are overprotecting their kids just like upper middle class white families. The key thing is whether you are basically grooming your kids for college of any kind, in which case you see, um, what did she call it? Oh, concerted cultivation. Leroux called it concerted yes. cultivation parenting. Yeah. That's not the top 10% only. That's like the top 50%. So if, if the parents are thinking, my job is to get you into college and help you have a better life and, and childhood is training for the job market. Okay, that's when you get the overprotection. Um, now, in, in working class families and poor families, they have much more physical danger and they have much higher rates of trauma. So they have mu- they're much more likely to have been beaten, sexually abused. Uh, and that's you know, the AC, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale. Um, so they also have higher rates of depression. But the depression, I believe this is the case, the dep- depression rates have risen more in whites than blacks. Um, more, I, don't, I forget the class finding. But the point is, we have a rise of depression and anxiety that's hitting almost all groups, but sometimes for different causes. And so when you go onto a college campus, it is overwhelmingly people from the top 10%. And the few who are there from the bottom 50%, you know, it's, it's not like, oh, well, they had a t- childhood, so they're thriving. You know, no, it's like they have other reasons why they're having, having trouble. So, they're struggling you know, for, for different reasons. They're struggling for more like J.D. Vance reasons maybe than for exactly, kind of exactly. elite, elite exactly. reasons because of their background. And I think one of the consequences of this, and I want to move on to this, uh, this epistemic element of it now because it's this sense of, you know, the old, the old phrases that, you know, sticks and stones, uh, what's the, the phrase, sticks and stones and make my we'll bones or whatever. Bones, it is. But names yeah. will never harm me, yes. Exactly. And it's kind of the loss of that, that idea. Um, oh, that's a microaggression. No, you can't say that anymore because you are blaming. If words will hurt me because words can well, hurt Words me. will hurt me. But more than that, I'm, I'm saying that if, if I say something mean to you, um, then I'm not actually harming you. But no, we, it's very important to, to make sure that perpetrators are blamed and they're the bad people and the victims are the good people. Anyway, sorry. I always, Go ahead. Yes, I sometimes wonder if, if the reduction in other forms of harm, physical kinds of harm, the drop in crime, the rise in life expectancy, that actually become much safer physically, right? So the, the trend towards greater and greater physical safety makes me wonder sometimes if that means that the definition of harm sort of expands to fill the vacuum. So if you grew up in a world where there was lots of physical threat, then maybe it was true that you would worry about the sticks and stones, right? Not the words. But if you're not getting hit by sticks and stones anymore, then suddenly words carry more weight. It's almost like we've that's right. recalibrated what counts as hurt and harm. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of things that are, there, there are a lot of trends that are related to what you just said. Um, so one is the World Value Survey shows that as countries get wealthier, Um, As they rise in development, of course, they now have fewer kids and the birth rate drops below two. Um, So you have fewer kids and parents put more more of their eggs in that one basket. There's more overprotection. There are fewer kids outside to play with. Um, But also values change, as the World Value Survey shows. As they get wealthier, they begin to care more about gay rights, human rights, animal rights, the environment. Uh, And so now arguments, any sort of argument about cruelty or meanness or violating rights resonates more. Um, so yes, you have sort of the, the, the standard shift, the goalpost shift or the lines shift. And in part, that's a good thing. That is, that is moral progress in many ways. But what's so interesting, what Greg and I try to point out in our book, is these problems of prosperity um, can feed back. If we're a lot more depressed than we were 20 or 30 years ago, 
Well, then there's something complicated going on here. If depression rates and suicide rates are rising among young people, um, at least in the United States, um, not it, it, globally they're dropping, uh, but in the United States, suicide rates are rising for almost all groups except for the oldest, uh, the oldest people. So, like so the ex- as the exterior threats drop, the interior threats. Yeah, that, that's right. Actually, right, Freud said something like that in Civilization and Its Discontents. He said there are three sources of unhappiness. There's like the external environment, you know, with the weather and hurricanes. There's our bodies and internal pains. And then there's other people. And here he's writing in the 1920s, I think it was, mm-hmm. saying, you know, we've largely tamed the external forces and medicine advances have allowed us to, you know, reduce disease in our bodies. And so we have to have a constant amount of misery, he says. So now it's all from other people. And that's why we're so neurotic in the 1920s or whenever he wrote that. Interesting. So we just reallocated the sources of our, our misery in a way. Um, so one of the results of this is, I think, to it creates the conditions to this em- epistemic problem, this idea of you know lack of truth and so on. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we've worked to reproduce this chapter from from Mill to try and get people to think about it. And just I'm going to just remind people what the kind of three uh, key million arguments w- were uh, in terms of why why should we allow you know this this thing to be said even if we think it's wrong and it's the three big reasons number one is well it might be it might be true even if it seems crazy or controversial quote mill the opinion may possibly be true second even if our opinion is largely correct we hold it more rationally and securely if it's so it's better to be challenged he who knows only his own side Mm -hmm. of the case knows little of that and third i think most importantly for our conversation most likely Opposing views each contain a portion of the truth which have to be combined. As he says, conflicting doctrines share the truth between them. And I think that's what you were, we were talking about before, this idea of sharing. It's very much where you come from. It's the righteous mind quote they gave earlier, and our friends can help us. And actually, Mill says something very similar in his uh, inaugural address to St. Andrews, who is rector, about looking through other people's glasses uh, to, to understand the world. And so this idea of engagement is one of the reasons we're in favor of free speech. I actually think what's been lost sometimes, John, is the, the why free speech matters has been lost a little bit, right? We're so concerned by what free speech is that this, we've lost a sense of like, why does it matter? And it's, and it's not because of a, what people call an exchange of ideas, right? I, I, I really, I don't, I'm really interested to see what you think of this. There's a couple of things I hate. I hate, the, I hate the phrase exchange of ideas now, and I hate the, idea, I hate the phrase marketplace of ideas. And I hate the phrase of exchange of ideas because it's basically like the exchange of gunfire during a battle. Oh, sure, you yeah. can exchange bullets. Are we better off as a result? Not really. And that's how social media feels uh, to me. Instead, you want the engagement of ideas. And that's also why I don't like the marketplace thing, because marketplaces are about exchange. And the idea of, I think we might disagree a bit about this, but this metaphor of a marketplace of ideas is similar to the idea of exchange. Mill never said it, although he's often misattributed to Mill. But it's the same idea of competition. Like a, bad, like a bad idea will be defeated by a good idea in, con- in conflict and competition in the same way that a bad product will lose out to a good product in a you know, product market and so on. I'd, I just think that, that both of those ways of framing it miss the point, which is about okay. engagement, sharing, and listening. Okay. All right, let me see. So exchange of ideas, right? We certainly say that a lot, and it sounds like it's a good thing. So I see your point there because and I, it doesn't. the least charitable is exchange of gunfire. But if you think about it more like exchange of baseball cards, that's not harmful, and each person gets a card that they want better. Uh, so actually, both are better off if they exchange baseball cards. But that still doesn't capture the generativity 
that we really want, that Mill wants for us. Exactly. Market, okay. Yes. Marketplace of ideas, I think, is... Sorry, let me actually, just say one more thing on, on that, actually, because Theodore Zeldin, who's a wonderful um, French historian by background, he has a book called Conversation. And he says, a conversation doesn't just reshuffle the cards, it creates new cards. Great. Okay. Okay. So the key thing here is positive sum interactions. Um, so I'm writing a book on capitalism now. I, you know, I spent most of my career at the University of Virginia in a psychology department. By a kind of a fluke, I ended up moving to the NYU Stern School of Business in 2011. I knew nothing about capitalism before then because I'm a very well-educated American, so I knew nothing about, about business or capitalism. Um, and it, learning about the history of capitalism and seeing those hockey stick graphs of how prosperity exploded in the, in the 19th and 20th centuries, um, you, you, what you really come to appreciate is the generativity of capitalism, the ability to put a few things together, and what you get is 10 times the sum of the parts. And so exchange of ideas doesn't capture that at all. Marketplace of ideas, I've always liked because the intellectual marketplace clearly has so many market failures. But now in our conversation, I'm seeing that a marketplace does create surplus value, but not exponentially. Like if, you know, if you have, if we have goods to exchange, or I have money, we're both better off, but only like 50% better off or 100% better off. It doesn't capture the inventiveness of capitalism, where people create totally new things that revolutionize life on Earth. So the marketplace doesn't get it. So what does? You know, I'm thinking in my book, I'm thinking more of like metaphors of a garden or nature or something about the, you know, so the million relationship, the million vision of Eden is a place where people are coming together, not just exchanging ideas, but... Um, something they're creating they're creating a social network which is an, has emergent properties that are vastly more creative than the sum of the individuals and that's what we now call the university yes that's it that's yes it. so we need yes. a metaphor that gets us yes. from exchange yes. to you're right i mean it's interesting you went to garden garden of eden and i think the reason you went to that is because and again this is very million this idea of growth and this idea of uh, with each is growth so we we're growing our own ideas we're helping each other's ideas to grow we're splicing together them together so i don't have a good metaphor either and and to be honest i think that there is value in the idea of a marketplace uh, I, because it makes you think about how well how do you how do you regulate actually ronald coase the uh, institutional economist had an essay back in 1974 i think where he talked about the fact that the marketplace of ideas was useful because it then made you think about the fact you need to regulate it he said something like i'm paraphrasing i don't have in front of me he said something like we always assume that in economic markets a degree of regulation will be required because not everybody is perfectly rational and you know utility maximizing Mm -hmm. why do we think the opposite when it comes to the marketplace of ideas where any regulation is definitionally bad because everybody knows exactly the right thing. So that sense of, if, if it creates a conversation where we think about how do we regulate the market or define what you've called the informational ecosystem differently, or maybe it's create the garden. I, I don't know what the metaphor is, but I do, what I don't want to lose is what you just said, this idea of okay. generativity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right? wait, Synthesis. Wait, wait, okay, I've got to say this before I, for, before I forget it. Um, it's not the marketplace per se that creates the explosion of growth, but the fact that there is a marketplace is what inspires all these people to be trying to invent some new product that, that will then bring to the marketplace. And if we switch this to the world of ideas, it's because there is, a, there is clearly a marketplace of ideas. I mean, I think the metaphor really does hold 
ideas battled out. Some are better than others. Some just have better PR. It's a worse product, but it's promoted by movie stars or something. So, so the marketplace metaphor works really well. But here's what we can add to it. Um, the marketplace itself doesn't generate the extraordinary value. It's the inventors, the inventions, the innovation, which there's so much incentive for people to do that because there is a marketplace. Now, a university or an academic community, so you know, you and I, I mean, you're, you're also a professor. You have, a, you have an appointment. I've been you're, within the you're a real professor. Well, uh, so I'm within the university entirely, and so I see that as the market. But what's happened, in part because of the new technology, is the academic marketplace has really spilled out into TED Talks and, and you know, more writing of op-eds. And, and your world, the policy world, you know, I, that's what's so impressed me about coming to Washington. Is even though this town is so polarized, like all of you, you know, right and left from the different think tanks, you all seem to know each other and you actually often talk to each other. Um, so, but my point is, if there wasn't the marketplace, if I wasn't in a university, if I was just like living in the woods somewhere, I would never spend my time thinking about moral psychology. I mean, it'd be absurd. But it's because there is a marketplace where I can draw from and I want to be successful in that marketplace. So I'm motivated to work all the time. Even when I'm walking in the woods, I'm thinking about, you know, sociology, moral psychology. So the marketplace okay. of ideas is a great metaphor. It's just not sufficient because you have to look at it as the whole system of capitalist production, which relies on a marketplace. How's that? Well, it's, well, now you've now persuaded me that the marketplace of ideas does work in a way because of this issue, but only under certain circumstances which yes. promote innovation. So exactly. we're innovation here. So exactly. in, in, the analogy Ooh. is that if you, how do you create circumstances in which innovation is rewarded? And actually what you do is, there's upside risk and downside risk, but in novelty, i.e. innovation, there's always risk. And the reason entrepreneurs and actually Mill, Mill that's why Mill was in favor of experiments of living and eccentrics. Experiments he didn't, he didn't want everybody to be an eccentric. Yes. He just thought we need some eccentrics out there because it helps to create these new ideas and this generativity. So, but that requires you to risk novelty. It requires you to break new ground and it requires you to probably fail, right? Most business startups fail. Most new ideas in the market fail and the good ones flourish. But you've got to be throwing it out there and giving it a go. The question is, do we still have an informational ecosystem that encourages you to throw new ideas out there? Great, great. That's the way to frame it. Or okay. not, or, or are you too risk averse now? Okay, so let's talk about, now let's focus on universities for a moment because those are supposed to be, at least in modern Western research universities on the German model, they're supposed to be that, and we'll talk about that. And then we, we'll talk about the broader uh, informational crisis uh, and our inability to, going back to your relative's statement that the truth can't be found, um, what is happening to our ability to innovate when we can't get facts and truth? All right, so do we still have this uh, a marketplace of ideas that is incentivizing innovation? So this is a perfect time to talk about that talk I gave at Duke that your, your son saw. Um, mm -hmm. Truth because, you versus social yeah. justice you. Maybe it's going to be innovation you versus Stalinist you. Well, I don't well know. so okay. So the thing, so the, the, the idea that I developed there that has really stood me in good stead, and, and I recommend to everybody, is don't talk about things like free speech in the abstract um, or just like about, you know, is this good? You have to always focus on an institution and what is the telos of that institution. So telos is that Greek word, you know, Aristotle would advertise uh, analyze things in terms of its telos. The telos of, of medicine is health. The telos of 
of a judge or a lawyer, you know, is, is a justice. And the, our telos in the academy is clearly truth. It's, you know, on Harvard's crest, it's veritas. On Yale, it's lux et veritas. Uh, on most of the others, it's something about light, knowledge, truth. And as, as researchers, our purpose is to find new knowledge and new discoveries. And if we don't do that, we're not good researchers. Related to that, as teachers, if we don't pass on knowledge and stimulate curiosity and learning in our students, we're not good teachers. So we have a dual telos as researchers and teachers. So that's the way it always felt to me. And that's when I fell in love with the academy. Um, I loved it. I was an undergraduate at Yale, and I felt like a kid in a candy shop, and I loved learning. Um, uh, and when I uh, went to the University of Pennsylvania for my PhD, and I was getting paid to learn, I mean, they were paying me $10,000 a year to take classes and go to talks and hang out with smart people. And I was like, I was just pinching myself, like, this is amazing. And I had that joy until about 2014, 2015. That's when it ended. Um, because the way it felt was, you know, again, I like to think in metaphors, intellectual life is, is you know, it's a bit like a game of tennis where I hit you a ball and you hit it back and I hit it back. And, and one of us is going to win the point, perhaps, um, uh, but it's fun to play. And we choose to do it. We enjoy doing it. We, we both understand what we're doing. And what happened beginning in 2014, 2015, is some interactions with students that I had, and certainly many that I was reading about, were I hit the ball to you, and then you tackle me. And I, and I say, wait, no, we're, we're playing tennis. And the other person says, no, we're playing football. Um, you know, or I hit the ball to you, and you punch me in the face. Like, what, what, why did you just attack me like that? No, well, this is boxing. Like, no, there's just complete incoherence. And that's what brought me to the idea that we're playing two very different games on campus now. That there, and this came in with the students, of course, well, and it was, the purpose of my being here at this school is not to learn, it is to fight racism, sexism, and fascism, and conservatism to some extent. And that is what I saw as being totally incoherent, or may, I'm sorry, it was totally coherent. Internally coherent. Internally. But you can't have two teloses at a university. Individuals can have multiple goals, but is the university organized to find truth, or is the university organized to fight racism, sexism, and fascism? And that was social justice, you and your exactly. So your I, that's right. Analogy. So in the talk, it's, it's I, almost I, like I, it's, sorry. Go ahead. No, just to give the quotes. Yeah. Um, I um, so I, you know, I gave uh, I gave the talk, and I started it by contrasting two different universities based on two patron saints. And that's what, uh, that's what your son saw. And that's why he came running to dad, his, the biographer of Mill, uh, because here are the quotes that I used. I said, um, Truth University is based, on, is based on Mill. And I gave the example, uh, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. And that quote goes on beautifully. Uh, but then for Marx, and this was the real discovery, you know, I read a bit of Marx in grad school, but to find this quote, the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. And that's when I realized, wow, this is you know, what, the, what the, the, the activist students are doing is they're saying, everything about my education here has to be based on trying to change the world. And that begins at school. I, you know, it, when I was in, at Yale, we were all focused on fighting apartheid in South Africa. Not that we could do much about it, but now it's all focused on fighting racism, fascism, and sexism at Yale, like, you know, or at, at the school. And, and that just seemed like a very different game and one that's incompatible with learning. So you end up, it's almost the distinction between 
going there to learn and going there to be trained, right? So social justice, yeah. you know, it's a training camp. And it's, and it's kind of reflecting on the difference between learning and training. And learning is much more the, t- the telos of learning to learn, learning to be challenged, shaping your ideas, changing, changing your ideas and even your, your intuition, your elephant in light of new evidence. Whereas training is, we know what we need you to do. Uh, and here's the goal. So it's like, but it's not just, I mean, it, you've talked about how it spread from campuses and through you know, the media and businesses and so on, that you had this terrific piece, actually, you co-authored it um, in the Atlantic in 2019 around what was happening to the informational ecosystem and how to fix it. And I'd love to talk, have you talk about that piece and and, and the, we can move on to the, the fixes. You had this wonderful metaphor there, which was imagine if God doubled the gravitational constant other gravity doubles overnight and the buildings collapse and you know we just the world go goes kind of crazy and then you argue that the equivalent happened as a result of social media from 2009 to 2013 can you just lay out that argument a little bit more for us okay yeah thank you because right, so now great. we can go but now we can go back to that marker that i set in 2015 like yeah the world is different after 2015 so uh, so things got weird on campus in 2014, and then it was clear it's in Canada and the UK, and it's in high schools, it's not just universities. But also in 2015, that was the year of right-wing populism. That was the year we started seeing, uh, I don't know when, when experts date the democratic recession, but you know, in, in 2010, 2011, we all thought, oh, the Arab Spring, Facebook is, is empowering democracy. No authoritarian country can withstand Facebook. And so that was the high point of democratic optimism and techno-optimism. But of course, the Arab Spring turned bad mostly in most of the countries. China developed the Great Firewall. Um, uh, faith in democracy plummeted in the 2010s. Uh, and so weird stuff is happening for democracies, and we're becoming doubtful of democracies. And then we get to 2016, we get the unexpected Brexit vote, and we get the, Trump, the unexpected Trump victory. So now it's like, wait, political systems are going haywire around the world. And at first I didn't connect that to what was going on on campus because that was like a right-wing thing mostly. And there was left-wing populism too, but it was more right-wing populism. And, you know, um, uh, Le Pen in France and the, the surge of, of, you know, even you know, racist right-wing and neo-Nazi right-wing parties in Europe. So that was weirdness going on on the right. And then on campus we had the, you know, the weirdness on the left and I didn't connect them at first. Um, but what became clear as, as it just began to feel to me more and more like, you know what? Everything is going haywire. That's when I started investigating these metaphors of, of like God changing one of the basic, there's like 25 basic constants of physics. They're constant throughout our universe. So if God, you know, doubled the charge of the electron or, you know, or the, or the gravitational constant, like everything would go haywire all over at the same time. And that's what it felt like. And what is that change? Um, it's too simple to just say it's social media or, or the Internet. Um, the internet is overall an incredibly wonderful thing. It's got some drawbacks, but the value it brings is, is you know, beyond anything other than maybe electricity. Um, it's specifically social media, and I started writing about this, but I don't know much about social media. I'm only on Twitter. Um, I don't know the technology behind it. And I happen to have a, there's a, a wonderful guy, Tobias Rose Stockwell, who I've met a few times. Uh, he'd worked in the tech industry. He really knows his stuff. And I asked him to join me in writing this up. Um, we had a good conversation. I said, can you help me with this? And what I learned from him as we wrote up the paper is that social media all starts in 2004 with you know, Friendster and MySpace and, and the Facebook, but it's not polarizing. It's not toxic. You, know, you show off how many friends you have, what bands you like, but you're not making people angry. 
In 2009, things begin to change. Facebook introduces the like button, Twitter copies it. Twitter introduces the retweet button, Facebook copies it. One of the Twitter engineers said in the first weeks of the product, he said, it was like we'd given a loaded gun to three-year-olds. I mean, he saw the way people were using the retweet and how it spread outrage. Uh, so this is exactly when social media becomes really engaging and the engagement data is what allows them to algorithmicize everything, which makes it even more engaging. And engagement is especially driven by emotions and especially negative emotions. So the world before 2009 was still a kind of a normal world with lots of bad stuff in it, changing at the pace things have changed at for a few decades. But between 2009 and 2012, we built what Tobias calls uh, an outrage machine, this gigantic outrage machine so that anyone can, can launch outrage that could go global. Um, and that's why the Russians in 2014 activate their network. The Russians have been trying to mess with American democracy for 50 years or more. Um, you know, they would you know, come over and spray racist graffiti or d destroy Jewish cemeteries, or, you know, stuff to make us try to divide it. But now they can just do it from St. Petersburg. They don't have to leave their chairs. Anyway, the point is, social media changed the basic informational flow ecosystem in very social ways. This is not just an issue of cognitive psychology and knowledge processing. It fundamentally changes social relationships and the social dynamics of logic creation and diffusion. And that's, that's the metaphor. So it's the it's the it gets us back to this point about the social epistemology and exactly. and actually the way in which the you know, comes back to the way in which the word engagement has now just been destroyed yeah. for me because actually engagement means how many tweet how many likes and there are lots right. of engagement it's not quality, actually it's pure quantity. It's not, it's like exactly it's not really exactly yeah. it's not, exactly it's not engagement in that yeah. sense it actually reminds me I can't remember who said this uh, actually we should never say we're watching TV watching is a misnomer we should say we're TV staring because watching <laughs> is an watching is an active uh -huh. thing whereas right and yeah. there's something analogous here which is that if you're just retweeting stuff and talking about stuff you're not engaging that's not engagement it's it's clicks it's eyeballs it's people watching but the idea of engagement is an active process yeah right? yeah um so yeah so, so so i read in the mornings in part to cope with the craziness of our world i read stoic writings and especially marcus Aurelius' meditations and i've just started going through epictetus the the handbook or the manual for living. And it's uncanny how they anticipated social media, or rather, they they warn us about the exact things that social media causes for us. So here, here's a, here are some of the ones I read this morning from Epictetus. Um, be discriminating about what images and ideas you permit into your mind. If you yourself don't choose what thoughts and images you expose yourself to, someone else will, and their motives may not be the highest. Wow. And here's another. Here's another. So I've also been reading um, René Girard, who's very popular in Silicon Valley. He's a French, uh, I'm not sure what, it, what his background was, but he developed this idea of mimesis, so that we copy each other. We're, all, we're, we're a species that's really intent on copying each other. But here's the thing. We don't just copy what people do. We copy what they want. And people wanting something makes us want it. We're very attuned to what they're trying to do, and we take that on as our own goals. Okay, so here's Epictetus writing in the second century. It is human to imitate the habits of those with whom we interact. We inadvertently adopt their interests, their opinions, their values, and their habit of interpreting events. And over and over again, um, Marcus Aurelius and, uh, and Epictetus, and also to some extent Buddha and many of the Buddhists, 
warn us about the about our social nature. How you know, garbage in, garbage out. Watch who you associate with. Watch what you read. And what has happened to especially to Gen Z because they didn't even have a chance to expose themselves to the world's knowledge. Their input streams have been flooded by stuff created in the last week by other kids ever since they were ten. So um, I think this is. Again, a part of the reason why things are going crazy, and especially for young people, because these streams of information. Well, I actually want to talk to some of the institutional reforms that we might engage in. You talk a bit about this in your Atlantic piece, and I really want to kick this around with you because I I struggle a little bit with fixes. But one uh, one response to this, actually, David French said on some platform the other day that um, we tend to overblame social media and underblame ourselves. And I was at the time I was reading. Um, rereading bernard williams book truth and truthfulness and he talks about the virtues of truthfulness telling the whole truth um, not continuing to spread untruths and and so williams situates it this is before the explosion of social media as a virtue so truthfulness as an individual virtue um rather than something that institutions do for us so to what extent do you think the responsibility for fixing this problem lies with all of us as individuals? i don't have to retweet i don't have to log on i don't have to respond i don't have to like how much of that is just about us recalibrating our own sense of what's good and bad for us and each other and how much of it is no facebook needs to be broken up or whatever well, it's interesting. I mean, of course, David French is is a conservative. He's he's wonderful. I love his writing. I love his thinking. He's one of the people I most love collating um, ideas with. Um, but conservatives tend to blame. They tend to insist on more personal responsibility. They tend to blame individuals more. And um, liberals or progressives tend to blame structural factors primarily. Uh, and uh, the funny thing, I mean, we should just briefly mention this. You and I first met when we were on a, a working group, um, uh, a group for, of, of experts on poverty from AEI and Brookings, left, uh, from right and left, uh, that I was the chair of. And I had not met you before then. But as we were thinking, who should we have on this? Like, who's like, a, you know, who's a person on the left who, you know, plays well with others, is open-minded. So we pick, you know, we pick you and, and a few others. Um, uh, but one thing I learned from that is when, because we all, everybody, right and left, everybody cares about child poverty. Uh, everybody wants to reduce child poverty in particular. But one thing I learned is that the right tends to look at personal causes, personal responsibility for poverty, family decisions, uh, whereas the left is always focused on structural, you know, structural racism, structural factors, economic factors. Um, and I, I, on this case, for a problem that came out so suddenly, um, because of changes in parenting and social media, I'm going to go more with the left here in the sense of saying um, we've got to change the big structural things. If we don't change those, um, we're not going to, you know, if you tell it's people get addicted to smoking and even if they know they're going to it's going to give them cancer, it's hard for them to stop. Um, depending on us trying to reach people and saying, stop, be mature. This is not even good for you. Like, no, that's not going to really do anything. So, so we have sure. to help, we have to we have to help people. So so it's it's a combination of the words. So, uh, and actually, you had this wonderful. I think just a minute on this would be great. You told me another occasion about this asteroid club that you used mm-hmm. to be part of, uh, and what the kind of motto of it was. Just get, I think it was just a yeah. this is a brilliant bridge actually to to this individual versus institutional. Okay, part. okay, yeah. Again, maybe this is too many metaphors for for the listeners, but I saw um, I saw a talk by uh, Yuval Levin. Actually, it was. Um, on something about the dead, or I read, I can't remember, but it was really compelling. And I realized, like, wow, you know, the dead really is a big deal, and people on the right, this was back when Republicans used to care about the dead. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, it must have been a while ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
But uh, yeah, I felt like, wow, you know, I didn't know this. Like, I'd never really taken this seriously. Um, and um, and then, of course, on the left, people are, are treating climate change as it's you know, it's. I think actually, oh, uh, somebody even used a metaphor like if you know if a, an asteroid was coming to hit the Earth, we would all unite against it. Well, climate change is that asteroid. Um, I think was that it was in a TED talk somewhere. And then I started thinking, like, wow, it's like each side sees asteroids that the other side doesn't see. And then I sort of thought about it visually. Like, imagine two people facing each other. And, like, as we are, as you and I are now. And I point over your head and I say, look, there's a giant asteroid which is going to destroy us. And you're saying to me, look, there's a giant asteroid which is behind my back. And neither one of us is even willing to turn our heads. Like, I won't even turn my head to look at your asteroid. Now, if I could turn my head, I would see it. And then I'd say, okay, you know what? I'll help you deflect your asteroid if you help me deflect mine. And so that was the idea, that if we can get liberals and conservatives together over dinner, and, I, and food is very important. As a social psychologist, I'm always looking for these, you know, sort of indirect emotional social things. So sharing food, breaking bread is very powerful psychologically. So it has to be over food. Let's get together over a meal. Uh, and it's an open question whether alcohol helps or hinders. We'll figure this out. Um, uh, and let's talk about child poverty. And that's actually what led to you and I meeting ultimately was we had this dinner. So before we brought you in, we had a dinner in New York City uh, and it was the, the left's asteroid was inequality and the right's asteroid was family decline. And they're actually related, as, as you know, as you've shown, uh, marriage makes a big difference for kids' outcomes. And vice versa. It's crazy to treat them separately. That's so that's right. like, I'll help you with your... But it, but it does, it comes back to this, this point about like truth, I think, to some extent. It's, it's occurred to me recently that when we swear an oath or we're in court we swear to tell the truth mm-hmm. the whole the whole truth. truth oh my god i never thought and nothing of that. but the truth and i think oh, honestly wow. what's, i think one of the real problems with the way we think about truth now is it's like the truth so of course there are some things that are just wrong right they're yeah. just lies and in fact there's some video going around at the moment that's making me think of this where desantis has been horribly edited by 60 minutes oh. but but the whole truth and what actually happens john is that the the respectable scholars on the left talk about inequality and economics and stuff, but they mention in passing family structure. They'll say, of course, family structure is important. So they have one sentence to deflect them, but then mm-hmm. the whole paper will be about that. And conservatives do the opposite. And so, actually, what the real one of the real problems I think is not that what you're saying isn't true. It's just that it's very much not to the whole truth because you don't like the other bits of the truth. They're uncomfortable to you, so you just ignore them. And it's getting harder and harder. And so you have to read, but basically what you have to do is read the conservative report and the liberal report at the same time and then just glue them together at the point where they mention each other's asteroid, Mm -hmm. to use your analogy. Well, okay, so that would be collating in a kind of a passive way. Um, And here maybe, I don't know, Richard, maybe deep down you're a bit of a conservative in that you seem to be pushing it on like people should do this themselves or people should be able to do this. I'm saying what I, I think that's kind of what I, no, I, I, I'm saying this is what we have to do in an environment where people are, are kind of self-editing, where they're not telling the whole truth. But this point about the whole truth and collation and engagement in the sense we've talked about it, you, you talked about this a bit in your Atlantic piece, like what to do. So it's come to the institutional reforms, right? Rather than individual, in case people do leave the conversation thinking I'm a conservative, although who knows what (laughs) I am now, who knows, who knows what anybody is anymore. But, but you talked about, and I actually saw you, you're talking to Chris Bale as well, who has a new book out on reforming the ecosystem. But you also had points about in your Atlantic about reduced friction, which I guess comes to retweet, which I've changed less anonymity. And what are the, what are the fixes? You know, if I've got a 
big tech person on and i'm and i can and I, I can wave a magic wand and change how they do it or how we regulate it what would they be these fixes sure okay so first to, to, to segue into that first let me just say that um when you were saying you know we each have to try harder to tell the whole truth and we each have to try harder to to glue up, glue things together the other side i would say almost nobody can do that almost no person can tell the whole truth it's certainly not about, I mean, you can be the world's expert on four-leaf clovers, that's fine. But if you're studying inequality or you're studying racism or anything political, it's very hard to tell the whole truth. Rather, you have to really embrace Mill and say, I need to be in a community in which collectively we will get the whole truth. And if, you know, if everyone in, you know, if everyone at the New York Times is on the left, you know they can't get the whole truth. And if everyone in the Defense Intelligence Agency, you know, is on the right, they won't get the whole truth. So you need viewpoint diversity. You have to commit yourself. So when you talk about structural reforms, again, as a social psychologist, I'm going to always start not with the technology and tweaks to the software or the algorithm. I'm going to start with what's the social relationships that are going to create truth as an emergent property. So I would start with the universities. Um, and that's why I co-founded Heterodox Academy. Um, if you anybody listening to this, especially if you are an academic, um, please go to heterodoxacademy.org. Uh, and we're trying to argue for uh, increasing viewpoint diversity, uh, uh, um, open inquiry, freedom of, well, freedom of speech, but we'll get back to that. Freedom of speech is not exactly the right thing here. But it's what is the purpose, what is the telos, and then set things up so that you maximally achieve your telos. Okay, so social media, what are the big fixes? Well, let's start with what is the telos? What are you trying to do? And of course, if your telos is just to make as much money as you can, well, then you're going to maximize for, you know, for anger and outrage and lies, you know, that those will spread faster. Um, and of course, you know, when, when Facebook became a publicly traded company or, you know, publicly traded companies often have that pressure from shareholders to maximize returns to shareholders. But, you know, I've, I've met a lot of people in Silicon Valley. Um, Facebook in particular has hired a, a lot of social psychologists. They actually really are working on this. And I know a lot of them. And so what is it that they should do when you okay. talk to them? Like, right. What are the changes they so can the make? Biggest, the biggest change that I want them to make, that I keep trying to tell them, and Tobias and I hinted this in our Atlantic article, um, is user authentication and ratings of users, um, uh, of users, uh, let's say, contribution to positive, to, to positive discussion. So here are the two things. So first, it's, it's unbelievable to me that anyone can just create as many Facebook or Twitter accounts as they want. And then you can use those to make death threats, rape threats. You can do whatever you want on them. And you'll get, you know, if you really do stuff like that, you'll get shut down within, you know, within a couple of days. But you can make hundreds more. There's no verification. And this allows a lot of people, and we have, you know, a lot of knowledge in social psychology, what happens when you let people put on masks and know that they'll be anonymous. And some perfectly nice people. I mean, I've even found, you know, a friend of mine who became a racist monster under his anonymous name on various social media platforms. It was bizarre. Um, but if he thought that maybe he'd get caught, he wouldn't have done that. So here's the first thing. Uh, uh, anyone can create an account to see what's going on on a platform once a platform becomes large, I would say. Uh, but what Tobias and I are arguing is if you want to post, if you want to broadcast, if you want access to the, to the public square, um, you have to have some degree of authentication. Now, that doesn't mean you have to show Facebook your driver's license and your social security number. They already know that, of course, but, um, <laughs> but but it could be done by if you want to get if you want to be able to post, you get verified. So just as Twitter has blue checks, they do some verification. In this case, 
uh, let's say the platform Facebook, for example, or Instagram, would kick it out to a third party. It could be a nonprofit. Um, and that third party just does whatever it takes to find out that you are associated with a certain country and you are a certain age. Um, and that so that if it ends up that you make death threats or rape threats, uh, and if there's a you know an FBI warrant for you, Facebook doesn't know who you are or wouldn't know who that this anonymous account is. But with a warrant, they could go to this third party. Now, just with that, that would crack down a lot on the terrorists, if on you, the right wing extremists. Knew, if you knew that at some level you could, you know, your identity was discoverable in the event of something extreme. Exactly. It's interesting that Clubhouse. I know you've been on Clubhouse a couple of times. I think uh, we're going to try a Clubhouse. I think after yeah, our yeah, after event. Uh, is you're not allowed to be anonymous. First right. of all, it's obviously so that's crucial, and that's you, one reason it's so civil. You have to use your own name. Yes, uh, and that's a very interesting that's kind a of shift. Step. That's right. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's also it's, it's this point about um, friction you mentioned too, and the, the guy you quoted the the engineer who's talked about putting a gun in a three or hand, who helped create the retweet button and then publicly regretted it. And afterwards, I haven't, you know, Twitter now will at least say, have you read this article, right, before you read do you, do you think you should read this before retweeting it? That's, that's a little nice. nudge. Can yeah, we go further nice on that kind of right. So, right. That, you know, that's a nice example. That's a, the, an example of the sort of thing that Tobias was talking about. And Tobias actually came up with the idea, w- w- certain, if you're going to post something and the algorithm or, you know, some AI determines that it seems to be hostile or aggressive or obscene, it'll ask you something like, you know, do you really want to post this? So, that's an example of adding a little bit of friction. Um, so I think those are good ideas, but those aren't going to transform uh, things. Those are just a little bit of a speed bump for the individual. What I'm after is things that will change in, in this complex dynamical system that settles into certain certain basins or certain stable configurations. We need changes that are going to change it systemically so it's in a very different configuration. And there are plenty of places online that are really nice. Why? They have, you know, if, if users cannot just upvote but downvote, you know, then that actually, you know, uh, saying something outrageous actually can get you more downvotes. So there are all kinds of, of changes that would really change things. I'm very interested want- in this idea of kind of rankings. Like yeah, one of your other heroes is Glaucon, actually, mm-hmm. from, right. uh, and, and how, uh, yeah, his point is, you know, you talk about Plato as well, but actually what matters is our reputation. It, what matters to us is what other people think of us. And so I'm just thinking about the fact that on Twitter, for example, it's how many followers do you have? Well, maybe a better metric would be how well do you engage with your followers? How many of your followers, you know, are, are I don't know what, exactly what the metric would be, but rather than just volume, how many retweets, how many followers, something instead about your, your verity score or your, I, I don't know. We all care about those yeah. things, right? We look okay. that up. You, I look up how many Twitter followers someone has. Okay, but that's right. But now what you're talking about is like putting, um, you know, uh, calorie counts and vitamin counts and fat content labels on fast food so that if people want to be virtuous, they can. And if people care about their verity score, they can try to get a higher verity score. That's not going to work. But here's what would. Um, What people really care about is the number of followers, things like that. Here's how to combine the two, harness the two together. What I would like is for Facebook or Twitter to stop focusing so much on content moderation. That's a losing game. That's impossible. Rather, focus on uh, the contributors. Focus on people, on what kinds of of people they are in terms of their contributions to the telos of the platform. Uh, And so if if, if they would just give me two numbers, one is cognitive complexity, 
So even, you know, it, it used to be you couldn't be complex on Twitter, but when they doubled it from 120 to 240, you actually have enough characters to say, I agree with so-and-so on X, but I disagree here. You know, you actually can show some as opposed to just, you know, screw you, you're stupid. Um, and so they could e that could easily be code. In fact, there are people who've done it. You could easily code cognitive complexity. So if every user gets a cognitive complexity score, that's one score. And I could, then I could say, you know, I want to filter out people who are a zero, uh, or if it's one to five, you know, I only want to hear from people who are two or above. And the other would be something about aggression or hostility, you know, which is a combination of like obscenity and threats and nastiness. And, you know, this, there, you know that is, again, uh, very easy to do on AI. AI is perfect at that sort of thing. So, and so again, zero to five scale, I don't even want to hear from people who are a four or a five. And here's the thing. If I, once I do my settings, they disappear from my world, I disappear from theirs. They, that means if they are obnoxious and simple-minded, they're going to lose a lot of followers and their count is going to go down. So, um, so the trick is not just to advertise your cognitive complexity, it's to make something that you care about hinge on your consistent cognitive complexity. That would be transformational. So I love that idea. I'm just wondering in practice how different it is from the individual approach that I was talking about earlier, because it still presumes that people will select into the people with higher, I don't, I'm not sure about, I know what you mean by cognitive complexity. It's almost like a real engagement score or something. I don't know what to call it, but, um, and a kind of low, uh, and a low hostility score or whatever. But on that basis, nobody would have followed Donald Trump. And yet he, en he ended up with many millions of followers. So aren't you being mm -hmm. as optimistic about human nature as you were just accusing me of being a moment ago? Yeah, okay, that's a good point. So you could certainly, because of the entertainment interest value, of course, you can always add people in. Um, and, I, you know, I follow Trump and I, I would, you know, so I would... I would it's a bad example, I guess. No, you no, kind of had, you, had, you sort no, of had yeah. to in a way because he was president. Yeah, but that's right. The, the that's equivalent. Right. Yeah, so no, you're right. We, it's an empirical question. You know, and that's, that's the thing about complex dynamical systems. I'm proposing two changes that I think would have gigantic systemic effects, but there's no way to predict in advance until you actually run it what actually will happen. So it could be that, say, psychology Twitter, which is usually pretty nice, uh, would get even nicer and like because it includes a lot of people who aren't professors, but like really like psychology. But there's a lot of just like nasty ad hominem people also. So it'd be good to just get rid of them and only have the people who are serious. You don't need the credential of a psychology degree. You need the civil, the civility of a person who occasionally says complicated things and who doesn't yell and scream and curse at people. Um, now, could there be sub-communities of people who just express outrage in a simple-minded way and that helps them, you know, find each other? Yeah, that could happen. Although I'm sure Facebook could tweak it so that such people... Be, uh, uh, such people, they could certainly tweak the algorithm so it would actually would not be easier for them to find each other. Uh, they could definitely do something about that. Now, something like Parler, um, which, you know, that sort of thing would thrive on Parler, but at least the verification. If there was the, if there was identity verification on Parler, then when, you know, when people are planning an attack on a mosque or a synagogue, okay, you know, at least, you know, even right. if their account gets shut down by Parler, eventually, like, they couldn't do that anymore. But it is these sort of uh, in-between cases the, where we're trying to just make the, we're trying to make be for better conversations. We're trying yeah. to make for engagement in the millions. Maybe we could call, maybe we could call it the mill score and that would be a big, big win for, oh, for me anyway. Yeah. But, but it, or the Bernard Williams, the truthfulness score. It is about, you know, the level of, and selecting into that. But it's certainly worth a try to give people, because right now it's quite hard even to opt into the sort of more truthful 
cultures on social media it's very it is hard to set those filters because you don't have those those metrics yeah, that's right that's right now there are certain places you know in my sense that quora is is much better um i i hardly ever visit reddit but that seems to be better um and somebody told me it's because they have a downvote score as well so you know um so even if you get a bunch of ups, upvotes you get a lot more down so so there are parameters that can make for much nicer social media but on the big platforms i think the two that that tobias and i are suggesting identity verification, and some sort of rating of the degree to which you contribute to a good discussion as opposed to poison it. I think that, that rating is, transformational. Is, a, is a great one. So I just want to use a couple more minutes, John, if, if I can, to talk about your, you've mentioned your book already that you're working on now on capitalism. And, and because I knew you were working on that, this line, when I went back to the righteous mind, stood out to me. You wrote the following in the righteous mind. God is commonly thought to have created the world and then arranged it for our benefit. If that's true, then the free market at its invisible hand is a pretty good candidate for being a god. So can I, we assume yeah. it's going to be quite a pro-capitalist book? Uh, well, <laughs> no. No, because I think, I forgot about that line, but I believe it's from the section where I try my best to channel conservatives, liberals, and libertarians. And that's from the libertarian section, I think. So I'm trying to say, I'm trying to really speak for libertarians. And this also really was new for me in writing The Righteous Mind. Before then, I thought it was just left versus right. But I realized, wow, libertarians actually are really different. And but it's also are- where you talk about how the amazing, amazing, and I agree with you entirely about this, just in terms of impact on poverty and more generally, just what an incredibly positive force the market has been on on net. Mm-hmm. I only think that's that's, that's right. important that we recognize that. So are you right? I'm being a little bit unfair. Um, tell us, tell a little bit about you know, sure. what's the what's the loss of the book? Maybe yeah. a good okay. way to put it. So the the title of the book, the working title is. Three Stories About Capitalism, The Moral Psychology of Economic Life. And the reason that I started working on it is I moved to NYU Stern in 2011 just for one year. I had no interest in business. Um, I just wanted to be in New York City when The Righteous Mind came out. Uh, and I just had my wife and I just had our second child in Charlottesville. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to come up to New York easily to do a 10-minute you know, interview. So I got a position, a temporary position at Stern. And I was teaching business ethics. And, um, and in the business school at Stern, it was all about creating value and social entrepreneurship and business can solve all these problems. It was this very positive story about business. And I was uh, listening to a set of lectures by Jerry Mueller, a really brilliant um, uh, intellectual historian at, at Catholic University. And again, I didn't know anything about capitalism until I read this. It was miraculous. So that's one story, okay? The very positive story. But then while I was teaching this business ethics course, Occupy Wall Street broke out uh, a mile south of the classroom. You know, I'm here in Washington Square Park and, you know, a mile south of Zuccotti, uh, Zuccotti Plaza. And I would and I'd go down there, you know, as a social moral psychologist, I want to, you know, here's a new political meet I want to interview. So I would just talk to people and I took photos of the signs. And it was an incredibly negative story of capitalism as a vampire, capitalism as a monster, capitalism. Uh, there's, a, there's a great metaphor from Matt Taibbi in Rolling Stone. Uh, about Goldman Sachs, but it works for capitalism. It's a giant vampire squid with its tentacles wrapped around the head of humanity, stuffing its blood funnel into anything that smells like money. Okay, so that's a very different story. And which one is true? Both of them are. Both of them are. And you can find plenty of historical evidence of both of them. And it's only by collating them. They share so the truth between they them. They share the truth between them. So that's actually what the book's about. I'm going to try to share the truth between them. Um, 
and try to do for economics what I was trying to do for politics and so, for social, you know, social politics, left-right social stuff was really what the righteous mind was about. It wasn't about economic left-right, but this will be much more about economic left-right. And my hope, um, since there's a lot written about capitalism by econ economists and historians, not for the general audience generally, but I hope to write a book for the general audience as a psychologist about capitalism. Because it was so miraculous to me learning about it at the age of 47. You know, I was 47 before I learned anything about capitalism, and it was really interesting. Uh, and so I want to try to share some of that with, with readers. Like, here's like the most powerful force that you probably don't know much about. Um, when I read about evolution in college, I read Richard Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, and it was just mind-blowing. And uh, it, uh, capitalism is the same. Are you, going to, are you going to talk at all about the way capitalism shapes our psychology as yes. well as the other way around? Because that's yes. obviously very much up your street too. And you know, I'm very interested in the way that it's created the idea of the future. It's changed the way we interact with each other. That, and Joe Henrik, who you know, you know very well, um, and who I'm hoping to interview too, I think tells a very good story about how it did, you know, it, it, the, the psychology of economic man, using that term very loosely now, is, is different. So are you going to talk at that causal relationship too? Exactly. That's right. So the first part of the book is going to be about the two metaphors and wicked problems. Uh, and then the next part of the book is going to be about sort of the history of capitalism and markets and how they developed, but then what they did to us. So, and this is what I really learned from Joe Henrik is gene culture coevolution and thinking about cultural evolution as a strand, almost like a strand of DNA. And Joe has done the best work you know, in his, his amazing book, um, the weirdest people in the world. So, no, it's fantastic that you're going to have him on. I hope you'll, you'll have him on soon after you air my episode because they really will fit well together. And I learned so much from Joe. Joe actually spent a, a year here at Stern um, uh, teaching with me, and we, we you know, read a lot of each other's stuff, and it really did, it really did affect me. Um, so, yes, capitalism is an enormously important uh, factor in human cultural development. And because it's so politicized, because, you know, a third of the country hates it, a third of the country loves it, a third of the country has no idea. Um, so, but most of, the, most of the analytical class, most of the intellectuals dislike it. Uh, and so they can't think straight about it. They think it's turned us into selfish creatures, the, uh, you know, the self-optimizing, rational individual and all that. Um, That's right. Yeah. Well, uh, John, I'm f perhaps you'll come back on um, when that book is, is ready because I'm very excited for that. But this has just been such a, a great conversation and I'm so grateful to you for joining me. So thanks well, again well, for joining me on Dialogue. And, yeah, and I'm so excited. I think we actually figured out. Like, you were against the marketplace metaphor. I was for it. And now we, I think we have, uh, we have to develop this, but I think we have a model for really trying to show what Mill was after and why Mill is still relevant today. today. We there need we that innovation because we share the truth between us. Yeah, well, we've, this has been a, a, a wonderful start for me. John, thank you again for being my guest. And Always uh, a pleasure. best of luck with thank the book. I'll see you soon. Take Thanks care. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Dialogues. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. And send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests, to dialoguespod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.